Welcome to the Shalhaba Community Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by the following message. Uh, on Tuesday morning, my aunt died. So then I prepped a funeral and flew to Sydney on Friday morning to take the, the funeral of my aunt uh, on Friday afternoon. I then jumped in the car again and was chauffeured uh, to my parents' house. And uh, my parents have lived in the same house for 51 years. And uh, they have just sold it. And yesterday, as I, I was picked up by uh, David and Mercedes, again, because I can't drive, uh, and was chauffeur-driven down here, um, as I drove out, it was the last time that I'll ever, drive, I'll ever be there as part of that, the, the house. And it was just kind of really sad. So lots of emotions, ups and downs, and uh, really, really intense emotions. But as I was walking around uh, that, the house <clears throat> for the last time yesterday, I was reminded of a... Uh, a, a message that God had me prepare out of uh, a, a revelation thought as I was just walking around. We used to raise, uh, as a kid, I used to raise cows, potty calves on the property. And uh, cows, for those that don't know, walk, if they're walking from A to B, they walk all in the same line. And they walk in the same spot every time. And it's called, a, 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 they make a rut. You know, they just, they just walk. And so you'll see in a paddock, you'll see lines of, of where, they, where they walk. And they, they, they basically make it, make it dust because they walk, they walk there all the time. And I remember I was praying one time and God said, very strongly, he took me back to when I was raising potty calves. And God said, don't let your Bible become a rut. And I went, okay, more information is required. And I love writing all over my Bible. Writing, I like destroying Bibles. You know what they say, a, a, a broken Bible, a damaged Bible will mean a whole life. A whole Bible will mean a damaged life. And so uh, I like wrecking Bibles. I like kind of just writing all over them and you know, scribbling and making notes and all that kind of deal. The problem with that is that once you've got a revelation out of a particular passage of Scripture, and you, you, you document it and you circle certain words and all that kind of deal. Every time you read that scripture, that's where you get, that's the revelation you get. So it becomes a rut. So you, you, if you read, say, the book of Revelations, and, uh, sorry, book of Ephesians, and one year, uh, I spent a whole year just studying the book of Ephesians, reading, 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 got all the revelation out of it. This is about seven or eight years ago. But then that was all the revelation I ever got out of Ephesians for the, for the next seven or eight years because... Every time I opened my Bible, I, I saw the revelation that I got that was seven or eight years ago. And it wasn't until I actually destroyed my Bible and had to get a new one that God began to speak fresh out of the book of Ephesians. So on that note then, when God told me this, I decided that I would go back to all the really, really common scriptures. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I would go and I would get new ruts because the problem with with the rut is you eat the same grass and so I wanted fresh grass and so I went back and visited all the old all the really really common familiar scriptures and said God speak to me afresh so this morning I'm going to preach out of a really really common scripture and that is Psalm 23 and I'm hoping to give you some fresh grass uh, because and I've got a love-hate relationship with Psalm 23 I hate the song. You know, the Lord is my, yeah, the Lord's my shepherd. They sing it at funerals. You know, yes, Friday's funeral, Friday's funeral was my 140th funeral. 
I put more people in the ground than the mafia. And I reckon at 138 funerals, they've sung, The Lord's My Shepherd. I hate the song. I said to my wife, when I die, if if you sing, The Lord's My Shepherd at my funeral, I will get out of the casket and just start to slap the sound guy around. I hate the song. Anyway, I hate Amazing Grace too, just for the record, if we're going to talk about what I hate. I mean, I love Amazing Grace, but I hate the song. Why? Because you sing it so many times, it's been flogged to death. But people, every time I say, every, if I ever tell anyone I hate the song Amazing Grace, they feel like I've somehow, like, just, yeah, just done something really bad. I love Grace, just hate the song. Anyway, this, that was a bonus thought for you this morning. So let's have a look at the Lord, uh, look at Psalm 23. It starts out, the Lord is my shepherd. David is writing this, he's a, he's a, a shepherd, he's a, well, he's a shepherd himself. And so he is putting the attributes of the shepherd onto God and, and saying, well, the, the attributes that I get out of a, a, the, the, as a shepherd, I'm going I'm to see that there's some godly attributes here. But he starts out, out and he says, the Lord. In my experience, people love Jesus as Savior, but are really uncomfortable with Him as Lord. The idea of a Savior is almost cute and cuddly, little puppy. In other words, there's grace, there's, there's, there's mercy, there's compassion. Jesus has done everything. I don't need to do anything else. He's my Savior. It's, it's just, it's fantastic. There's no requirements on me whatsoever. So yes, I love Jesus as my Savior, but Jesus as my Lord, suddenly there's a whole stack of requirements. Not to earn your salvation, but see, God wants to save us but then he wants to disciple us and he wants us to change and he wants us to, to, to run the run of faith, the, 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 the race of faith, and, and to mature and become mature Christians. So last time I was here, I think I mentioned the concept of vampire Christianity, where people want the blood, but they don't want to change. And I, I believe our churches right across the world are filled with people, particularly in the West, that are, that are vampire Christians. I want to come, I want to come to church on Sunday, ticket box, get a little bit of the blood, and the rest of the week I want to live the, the, whatever way I want. George Barna is uh, a, a research institute in, in America, and uh, I don't know, I think I might have mentioned this last time I was here as well, but he did a study where he picked 28 areas of behavior that should be different between Christians and non-Christians. Consumption of alcohol, consumption of pornography, marriage breakdowns, smoking, swearing, all that kind of stuff, 28. And he did this extensive study and he found that in 18 of the categories, there is no discernible difference between the way Christians live and the way non-Christians live. That, my friend, is alarming. And what that means is that we love Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. David starts off and says, you know what? God is my Lord. Then he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Who owns God? I do. David was saying, the Lord is my shepherd. I own God. See, what happens is we grow up, as we're growing up, we, we well, for, certainly for me, I borrowed God from my parents. I went to church because my parents took me to church. And then when I was a bit older, I went to church because my parents told me I had to go to church. But when I was 16, I went through a period where it was kind of like, I don't know whether this God thinks for me or not. 
And so I went through a period of six months of just where I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to make a really, I'm going to study this, I'm going to talk to non-Christians, I'm going to talk to Christians. And, and I made a conclusion at the end of the six months that God is, is, is my, um, God is real. So God became my God. I stopped borrowing my parents' God and I borrowed, I, I, I took ownership of God for myself. But, but again, I observe people all the time. They borrow their pastor's God. They borrow their spouse's God. They, some, some people even borrow their, their, their children's God. Oh, we come to church because we want our children to go to, to Sunday school. Well, that's borrowing your children's God. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. We need to take ownership of God. We need to have a personal relationship with God. So to, the answer to the question, who owns God? I would hope you would say, I do. David goes on and says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now a shepherd protects his sheep, guides his sheep, provides for his sheep. And protects his sheep. And God does the same for us. He guides us, he protects us, he corrects us, and he provides for us. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. You know, sometimes I pick up the JB Hi-Fi catalog and realize I don't have everything I need. But in regards to life, God has given us everything we need. And to have that place of contentment is so powerful. I love the fact that, that Jesus says, or, or uh, the, the uh, Bible says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That means that the worst thing that can happen to you is good. That's a radical way to live. If the worst thing in life would be kind of death, if that's the worst thing that can happen to you, and the Bible says, well, that, that's, gonna, that's to your better benefit. That's a great way to live. That's an incredibly content way to live. I, I think uh, so many of the world's problems are, are, are brought about by this, this drivenness for more. What if we were just saying, you know what? I'm content. I have everything I need. He goes on, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside the still waters. Uh, this is, if you're a sheep, this is a picture of perfect peace. There was a CNN poll recently that said 59% of all Americans would like to slow down and relax a little bit more. I would think if we talk to Australians, the percentage would be higher. We are in a frenzy. Don't we live in a frenzy? Who got bored this week? You did, <laughs> I can't remember the last time I got bored. We're in such a, a, a frenzied environment. And at times that we've got to take some time to rest, relax, and recuperate. I found, though, that I had, when I had young kids, young kids don't want to relax. We used to, do, we used to do three services at Narrow City Church, and so we used to make our girls have a sleep in the afternoon. You know, they're three, four, five, six, have a sleep. Man, you cannot get a four-year-old to have a Sunday afternoon sleep unless you, you, like, you tie it to the bed or do something. You've got to, don't ring docs. Uh, but, I mean, you've got to force the child to have a break, uh, have, a, have a rest. 
now that my daughter's 18, she doesn't get out of bed till midday. What's the difference? It's a maturity thing. And we at times, in the frenzy of our life, have got to understand that God is calling us to just, at times, take a step back, rest and recuperate. Jesus actually said to his disciples, come aside and rest for a while. Take a time out. And we need to submit to the, uh, to the directions of God in this particular area and, uh, and allow him to cause us to rest. Some goes on and says, he restores my soul. You know, at times we get beat up in life. We do things that we feel guilty for. We get hurt that we hold, and we hold grudges. We go through grief processes. But we have to allow God to restore our soul. Sometimes on my computer, you know, you open so many files up and so many windows and you've got things running in the background. My computer just goes, oh, I'm done. Or it slows right down to the point where you want to throw it out the window. But what I do, all I do is hit the off button and hit the on button and it comes back on and it's, it's happy again. It's refreshed. And God at times wants to restore our soul like that where we've got so much going on and so much grief and grudges and hurt and it's so, it's so noisy inside our brains and so noisy inside our hearts that we just need to allow God to restore our soul. Now in Psalm 42, David says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Now, it's an interesting term for a shepherd to use about a soul being cast down. Because in the Middle East, there is such a thing as a cast down sheep. Middle Eastern sheep aren't made very well. They were potentially put together by a committee. It just They don't really work all that well. And the sheep, what happens is, is if a sheep falls over, and particularly if it gets up on, a, on its, to its back, its legs are so spindly and, and little. Like don't, don't think Australian merinos. Think more like goats, uh, Middle Eastern sheep. And so the, the, they, the sheep don't have the momentum or the weight in their legs to, to actually fly, throw themselves back over and get back up on their feet. The problem is when they're upside down is that they, they, their stomachs start to expand, the gases in their stomachs start to expand, and so it puts pressure on their, uh, on their lungs and can cause them to suffocate. Additionally, Crow-like birds in the Middle East will come along and pick their, like, uh, eat their eyes, pick their eyes out. So it's a very dangerous position to have a cast-down sheep. But there's a process for a shepherd to actually restore a cast-down sheep. So the shepherd will go up to the, to the sheep and, and lay it on its side and begin to massage its legs and, and start to get the blood flowing back into the legs of the sheep. After a while, and, and again, the shepherd apparently is, is very lovingly and very kind of talking nice to the sheep and, and reassuring it. He puts the sheep up on its, on its legs, puts it between his legs and, and just to give it some balance and allow it to, again, the, the, the blood to flow down, to get equilibrium. And then after a while, again, he's still patting the sheep. Uh, after a while, he lets the sheep go and it's restored. What a great picture of us when we have a cast down soul. Because there's been times where, in my life, where I felt like a sheep on its back and not able to find any way to get back up. But David is saying, he restores my soul. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. It goes on and then says, He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. 
Life is a series of choices. And if you choose well, you, your life reflects that. If you choose poorly, your life reflects that. The problem is that we are blind to the future. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I've got plans and a plane, but I don't actually know what's going to happen. I'm blind to the future. Wouldn't it be great if we kind of had some sort of a, a, a bit of a, an insight? I put a post on social media the other day that created a bit of a frenzy in comments, and I said, if you had an envelope in your hand that had the date of your death, would you open it? And people go, no, no. And some people are saying yes. And it was like, there was no middle ground. It was either really yes or really no. I'd open it. I mean, if I'm going to die in five years' time, let's stop putting money into superannuation. <laughs> Seems to make sense to me. But we are blind to the future. You know, Middle Eastern sheep are, are fairly blind. They can only see a few feet in front of them. And that's why you don't drive sheep. You don't, in Australia, we would get, we would get a couple of, of, of dogs and a, and a motorbike and, and we, would, we would drive sheep. You don't drive Middle Eastern sheep like that. The shepherd walks in front of the flock and he calls to them. That's why Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. Because on any one hillside, you could have several flocks and you can have several voices and several shepherds calling to their sheep, but the sheep knew the voice of their shepherd. And so he would walk in front of them and he would call to his sheep and his sheep would follow them. David is saying here, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In other words, we've got to hear the voice of God. Now at times, at times we get barriers to hearing the voice of God. Is this sermon, do you podcast these sermons? Okay. I don't particularly want Melanie to hear this next comment, but my wife snores. Like real bad. So why wear earplugs to bed? And at times I'll get into bed and I've already got the earplugs in and I can hear her talking, but I can't discern what she's saying. And then I've got to decide whether I get up, take the earplugs out, engage, or whether I just pretend I'm asleep. But anyway, it's not a support group, so I'm just going to move on. But if, so I can hear her, but I can't hear what she's saying. I reckon a lot of Christians live like that. They can hear God. Even, even during a sermon, they, they might hear God and he, but they can't discern what he's actually saying. But it's time we took the spiritual earplugs out, the, the, the barriers that are causing us a blockage to hearing the voice of God and actually start to engage more with God and say, God, what are you saying? Because we're blind to the future, but we have a guide that will call to us and will lead us and will help our decisions. It goes on and says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's an old Arab, Arab parable that says, all sunshine and no rain makes a desert. We, we want to go through life with no storms, no dark valleys. But that's not life. And that's not how our character is developed. In Israel, there's actually a valley of the shadow of death and one of the reasons why i hate the song that's sung at funerals is because it's not actually referring to going like to dying 
but people start think because it talks about the valley of the shadow of death, it somehow relates to, to dying. It's got nothing to do with dying. It's got everything to do with going through hard times. And in Israel, there's an actual valley of, of the shadow of death. And it's, it's a very narrow valley, a very high, uh, high mountains on either side. And the sun, on, the sun only hits the bottom of the, the valley when it's right overhead. So I, I imagine that David maybe even walked through this valley uh, at different times. And in the Bible, valleys always talk of hard times. Joshua talks about the valley of calamity. Psalm 84 talks about the valley of weeping. Hosea talks about the valley of trouble. Let me give you five facts about valleys. The first one is, they are inevitable. They're going to happen. We are going to go through hard times. The, the amazing thing that, that I, 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 get, I get amazed sometimes, that when people go through hard times, it's like it's the first time that they've gone through a hard time. I, mean, I remember people at Narrow City Church, uh, you know, they come to me and they go, oh, I'm going through a really hard time at the moment, so I'm just going to have a break from church. Wow, that seems like... So your life's sinking, but you're going to get out of the lifeboat and jump into the water. Okay. But valleys are inevitable. We are going to go through hard times. Every single one of us. I love the fact that Jesus isn't like Amway. Amway, if they want, to, if they want you to come... And, is it, do we have any Amway distributors here? Okay. Sometimes people come up to me and they say, hey, uh, I've got a really good investment opportunity. Would you like to come and come to a meeting and we're going to talk about it? I say, no. Or, or now I go, is this Amway? And they say, it's, do, you, do you really want to make more money? I go, is this Amway? And you ask them 47 questions and they never ever say, yes, it's Amway. Right? Jesus, when he spoke, was upfront direct. He said in John 16, verse 33, hey, in the world you're going to have trouble. Okay, yeah, well, well good, good job selling Christianity, Jesus. But he, but he goes on, he says, but you know what? Be of good cheer because I've, I've deprived it of its power to harm you. Valleys are inevitable. We've got to understand that we are going to go through hard times. Valleys are unpredictable. Now, I am right into planning. I love my Google Calendar. I, I'm right into planning. And I have said to Jesus a few times, look, the end of May would be a really good time for a bit of a hard time. And mid-September, every other time, it's, it's really, really inconvenient. Okay, so let's schedule this in. I'll tell my secretary, we'll pencil, we'll pencil a few dates. You get back to me when the valleys are, and we'll go from there. Who knows? They always come at the worst time. Valleys are impartial. I mean, I, they, they, they affect old people, young people, ugly people, beautiful people, rich people, poor. Everybody goes through hard times. But valleys are temporary. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Hard times come, but hard times go. There's a, great, there's a great statement in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that happens over and over and over, and it says, and it shall come to pass. All the hard times in my life, at some point, come to an end. All the valleys, all the storms, come to an end and David's saying here as I walk through the valley of the shadow I do know though at times sometimes people will sit down in their valleys and will prolong the process and finally valleys are purposeful you know your character is only shown in the midst of a storm 
your true character. I mean, anybody can be good when things are going well. But it's when things go bad that all of a sudden their character is shown. On the flip side, your character only ever develops in the hard times. So valleys are incredibly useful, incredibly purposeful. David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and then he goes on, he says, I, I will not fear. See, when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we've got to make some choices. And David says, I choose not to fear. Let me tell you something. Your emotions are poor decision-making points. Because what happens is people go through hard times and so they're, they're fit, they're, like your emotions just yell at you so loud when you're going through hard times. And so then people make life choices in the midst of the hard times. David says, I will not fear. And he says, I, uh, even though I walk through the valley, there's no panic here. He says, I'm, going, I'm, I'm choosing to walk. I'm making choices about not fearing. And then you get this, right? This is one of the most powerful thoughts I got out of Psalm 23. If the only thing you get out of today's psalm, uh, today's sermon is this thought, here it is. David starts off by talking to the reader. So it's like he's talking to Suzanne. He says, hey, Suzanne, let me tell you about my God. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. And he's talking to the reader. And then he gets to the place where he says, hey, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, I will not fear. And it's like he pauses right there. And I wonder if David was thinking about some of the, the hard times that he'd gone through. And he forgets Suzanne. He forgets the reader. And he says, for you are with me. And he changes tense right in the middle of the psalm, right in the middle of the sentence. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, what an amazing thought that is for me, that, that in the midst of the hard times, what we do is we run into the presence of God. We focus on Jesus and develop an intimacy with Him in the midst of the valleys. He says, your rod and your staff, protect me. The rod was a piece of stick with a big knot on the end of it. And the staff was, was a shepherd's crook. And so we know that, that or David knew, that, uh, that between the, the guidance of the staff and the protection of the rod of the shepherd, that David was safe. That in the midst of going through hard times, in the presence of God, there is incredible safety. He goes on and he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. You anoint my head with oil. In the, in the Middle East, there's a problem with flies landing on the nostrils of the sheep, laying their maggots into the nose of the sheep the maggots then climb up the uh, nasal cavity into the brain and they begin to eat the brains of the sheep while the sheep's still alive tonight for nachos we're serving sheep's brains 
for just $5 if you pre-order. So it's not unusual to see a sheep on, in the Middle East banging its head on the ground because it's driven insane by the pain of having its brain eaten alive. So what the shepherds used to do was that they would get some anointing oil and some sulfur and they would anoint the head of the sheep and it was like the first error guard ever made. And it would repel the flies and protect the sheep's brain. And, and I, I look at that, I get an incredible picture. God, I want my head to be anointed because I want wrong thinking not to get into my brain. Because there's been times in my world and times in my walk with God that there's been wrong thinking in my brain and it's caused me to make wrong decisions. It's caused me to hold grudges against people because I'm thinking wrong. And we can get negativity into our, into our thought life. We can get inferiority. I mean, look at the children of Israel. God had miraculously driven them out of, or taken them out of Egypt across the, the, the wilderness for seven days. They're on the edge of the Jordan River. They sent 12 spies. And these spies were mighty men of God or mighty men of leadership in the children of Israel. Two of them come back and they say, hey, we can take this land. 10 of them said, we were like grasshoppers in their sight and in our own. In other words, they saw themselves as small, inferior, uh, able to be stood on, no faith whatsoever. And as a result of that, as a result of, that, result of that maggot thinking in their brain, they walked in the wilderness for 40 years. We've got to be so careful that we don't get maggot thinking in our brain. And the way to do that is to stay under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Come on, Holy Spirit. Anoint my head with oil. And then my cup overflows. The picture of, of, I mean, in the Middle East, nothing overflows in the Middle East. Uh, so uh, an overflowing cup is a, is a picture of blessing, of supply. And I want my cup to overflow. Overflow with provision, overflow with joy, overflow with happiness, overflow with influence. But I think the two are linked. If we have wrong thinking, that will deprive us of so much of the, the blessing of God. And as the musos come back up, the last one is, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That means that as David goes through the valley of the shadow of death, goodness and mercy are following him. Now, there's been times I've gone through, uh, see, goodness and mercy doesn't stop the crisis, but it follows the crisis. Different times I've gone through hard times and, and at times I've kind of said, well, where are you, God? But then I stand back and I look and I see goodness and mercy coming out of the crisis. So we've got to look for the goodness and mercy because David says, goodness and mercy is going to follow. Everywhere I go, goodness and mercy is going to come. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing that as Christians, everywhere we went, goodness and mercy followed us that we left a trail of goodness and mercy all through our life all through our day we left a trail of goodness and mercy let's pray Father we thank you Lord for Psalm 23 Father we thank you Lord for the the anointing of the Holy Spirit Lord that anoints our head with oil 
Lord, that guides us, protects us. Father, it causes us at times to rest. And Father, we want to take ownership in a greater dimension of you, God. We want you to be our Lord in every facet of our life. Come, Holy Spirit. And as every head's bowed, every eye's closed, I want to ask a question. Maybe there's some people here today that don't know Jesus. I want to tell you to do life without Christ is an incredible tragedy, I think. To do death without Christ, it's unimaginable horror. Jesus makes all the difference. If there's anybody here right now that would like to like me to pray for them, I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to, I just want to know who I'm praying for. If you just raise your hand and say, Peter, pray for me. I'd love, to, I'd love for you to introduce me to Jesus. Is there anybody here this morning that would raise their hand and say, Peter, pray for me? Awesome. Fantastic. Anybody else? Awesome. Anybody else? That's two. Two ladies right now are having their eternal destiny changed. Anybody else? Another hand. Thank you. That's three. That's awesome. Four, five. Awesome. Two more. That's awesome. Jesus makes all the difference. Just one last time. Anybody else this morning? Wonderful. I'd like everyone to stand if we could. And those people that put their hand up, I want you to say this prayer after me and we're all going to say this prayer. And it's a prayer that acknowledges the Lordship and the Messiahship of Jesus Christ and asks Jesus to come into your life. Okay, it's, it's, it's an amazing, an amazing thing. Let me just tell you one thing. I, I told this story at the, at, at the funeral. I have been by the bedside of 18 people as they've died. Not all at once. Uh, I am not the mafia. Uh, 13 of them were Christians. Five of them were non-Christian. I want to tell you, at that point of a Christian's life where they take their last breath and you wait because often people they shallow breathe and then you wait for the next breath and it doesn't come I want to tell you there is a tremendous sense of the presence of God in the, in the hospital room like there is a tremendous sense and on the other side I've been with people that didn't know Jesus that passed away and there is a, just a vacuum. It's, it's desperately sad. I want to tell you, Jesus makes all the difference. All the difference. And so the, 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 the people that have put their hands up today, I'm telling you, what is happening right now makes all the difference. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I acknowledge the work of the cross that you died for my sin. Today, Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. Forgive my sin. Take away my past. Make all things new. I commit today, Jesus, to following you as Lord and Saviour for all my life. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Father, I pray, Lord, for these uh, seven people today. And God, I ask you, Lord, that today as they have taken this incredible step, Lord, that they'll never look back. But God, that there will be a passion. Lord, that they will remember Psalm 23 fondly. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm going to take passionately hold of Jesus Christ and I'm going to serve Him for the rest of my life. Father, I pray, Lord, that we will welcome these people into heaven, Lord, in the future. And God, I ask You to bless them indeed. Lord, let goodness and mercy follow them, Father, all the days of their life. In Jesus' name, Amen. Come on, let's put our hands together. That's awesome. If all the people that put their hand up, if you could see the information desk on the way out, is that right, Suzanne? There's, there's, we give you a, like give you a Bible or give you uh, some information on Christianity, and and one of the first things you need to do though is uh, join a church. And I can't think of any better church right now than this one. It's a great church, great leadership, and so I really encourage you to do that. Come on, let's just, let's sing something powerfully fast.